I grew up on a farm and there was no lights around at night apart from the lights in our house. So, of course, we had the most incredible view of the Milky Way. This is Dr Alice Gorman. Alice has a long relationship with space and also a pretty unique one. And I just became obsessed with stars, I guess. So you might say, well, why didn't I become an astronomer? I don't know, because we can't go to the stars. We can go to places in the solar system. Alice's background is in archaeology and is currently a senior lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at Flinders University. And she's also on the Advisory Council of the Space Industry Association of Australia. And the reason Alice's relationship with space is so unique is because she calls herself a space archaeologist. First off, what is space archaeology? The space archaeology I'm talking about is the application of archaeological techniques to the material culture of space exploration. So this is the stuff. This is the places and the landscapes. It's the artifacts, the rockets, the satellites, the, the junk that's left on the surface of another celestial body or left on the surface of Earth. There's another term. This is using satellites to get images of the surface of the Earth and locate or map archaeological sites on the Earth. So that's sometimes called space archaeology, but it's actually remote sensing being done on terrestrial sites, so they're, they're kind of different things. The quest to find other sentient life within our galaxy, or to outside it, is one that's plagued scientists, researchers, and everyone since we realised that space in fact exists. And it's these archaeological explorations that Alice says would not only help us unlock mysteries of the past, but help us reach future goals when it comes to understanding what space is. In 2017, given everything that we've done up to this point in terms of figuring out what is space, what's happening, how we can explore space further, what are the goals today still? Are they still, you know, look for somewhere else where humans can inhabit? Are we looking for life still internationally? Do we still have those same sort of goals? Yeah, I think... We definitely are interested in finding whether there is anything living in the solar system. And it's only really in the last, I don't know, 50 years that we have abandoned the idea that we'll find anything other than, you know, bacteria or microbes. We're very interested in habitation. But the main goal today, according to Alice, is looking to space as a way to understand how and why our own planet is changing. The planet Earth is obviously entering quite a critical phase in terms of climate change. We don't know what's typical or atypical in terms of this kind of change, although we do know that human activities are making a contribution to this change. But in terms of how this fits into the whole solar system, we really, our sample of places in the solar system is really so tiny. We don't, we don't know what's normal. We know that a planet like Venus, for example, once had much more favourable conditions. It seems that at some point Venus and Earth were possibly fairly similar in geology and climate and Earth went one way and Venus went the other way. The other way involves having a surface temperature of 450 degrees Celsius, a massive thick atmosphere, a large part of which is sulfuric acid and no liquid on the surface. Some people call it a runaway greenhouse effect occurred on Venus and in fact 
the existence of the greenhouse effect on Earth was first identified from Venus. So this gives you an indication of just how critical it is to know more about the solar system. To see what potentially happened on Venus and how, in however many billions of years' time, the Earth Earth might be in the same position. Yeah, or, you know, millions or thousands of years. Like, we don't even know enough about that time scale. There's that tendency, you know, we think of ourselves as sort of apart and separate from the rest of the solar system and a bit of a special case. And, you know, we are in many regards, but we're also just another planet. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today, the intergalactic space race. On this show, we tend to do a lot of introspective looks into what we as humans are doing to the planet, but some of these realities still seem somewhat unfathomable. The prospects of space exploration seem, to the layperson like me, even further out of grasp. But as you'll hear today, the aspirations and goals we have when it comes to space are becoming more of a reality and could be crucial for future generations. But to understand where we go from here, we need to look back. Our adventures in space began in 1957 when the Soviets launched Sputnik 1 into space. It was the first man-made object that orbited the Earth, and that really began the so-called space race. This is Stephen Freeland, a professor in international law at the University of Western Sydney. Sputnik 1 was the first artificial Earth satellite to be launched up above the planet. It was around 80 kilograms and 50 centimetres wide, and it lasted only two and a half months in space. When it came to the beginning of our tangible relationship with space, as in the launching of satellites and actually putting things up there, initially this had a military focus. The development by the Soviet Union on the one hand and the United States on the other of their space technology was for them a logical extension of the development of missile technology. During the Second World War, the Germans had developed ballistic missile technology in the form of their V2 and V1 rockets, which they shot They shot, shot several thousand of these into the UK. All of this technology really developed with military eyes in their mindset. But that quickly changed. And now... Space is intricately involved in every aspect of every community's lives. Everybody is dependent on space technology for a whole range of things. So GPS and remote sensing technology, communications technology, etc. Every time you go to an ATM machine and withdraw money, you're actually using satellite timing signals. Alice Gorman. You know, people can't navigate their own way around the city they live in anymore without recourse to some kind of navigation device, often in their phone. I think a lot of people just forget that space exists. And unless there's some massive event like the New Horizons flyby of Pluto a couple of years ago. New Horizons is an interplanetary space probe that was launched on January 19, 2006. That's travelling to the Kuiper Belt, which is beyond the orbits of all the planets in our solar system. 
It reached Pluto on July 14, 2015, nine years, five months, and 25 days after launch. And we really do need to remember that that's what's going on. People, yeah, tend to just look down and not look up, I guess. The New Horizons satellite is a bit of an anomaly. Normally, satellites and probes aren't sent out that far. But the ones that let us get money out of the ATM, let us make calls, use the maps on your phone, these satellites sit in the orbital belt above the planet. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's orbiting around the 2,000 kilometres above the surface of the Earth height, pretty dense with stuff. This includes things like the International Space Station and a lot of our Earth observation satellites, uh, weather satellites, navigation satellites tend to be a little bit higher up in what they call medium Earth orbits, um, up to, you know, 4,000 kilometres or so above the surface of the Earth. And at 38,500 kilometres above the surface of the Earth, we have all of the telecommunication satellites. And anything that goes beyond that enters the graveyard zone where old telecommunication satellites get boosted up to get them out of the way. Boosting satellites up into the graveyard zone, on the one hand, seems practical to make way for new satellites. Space is large, and pushing one satellite up to go float around no longer makes it our problem. Well, we may want to think that. At the moment, there are over 1,000 satellites orbiting the planet at varying heights. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but compare that to the 29,000 bits of stuff bigger than 10 centimetres that are also orbiting the planet. These bits of stuff can be debris, old satellites, boosters that boosted up other satellites, and these bits are called space junk, and they pose a number of problems. The main concern with this is that it's travelling at extremely high speeds, And if bits of space junk collide, they can destroy each other, break each other up into more little bits that will then collide with other things. We have very expensive satellites that, you know, cost millions to billions of dollars to put up into orbit. And these are the things we're relying on for our phone conversations, our satellite television, our ability to go to the ATM and get money out, looking at the weather in the morning. If a piece of space junk collides with a functioning satellite, a possible outcome is that the satellite will explode. All that money will be lost, that service will be lost, and there'll be thousands more pieces of space junk. Some people hypothesise that there is so much junk we can no longer launch anything into space without it being destroyed by collisions, which is a bit scary. Now, those satellites you were hearing about are not only keeping us connected, they're feeding us information about other planets and celestial bodies in the solar system. So I downloaded the data from either NASA website or European Space Agency websites, and that was from satellites orbiting Mars currently. This is Emily Bathgate. Emily did her honours at the University of Technology, Sydney, on sub-ice volcanism on Mars essentially meaning looking for volcanoes under ice sheets across Mars's surface. And Emily was looking at all of this through images fed to her by these satellites. So you get elevation data, you can get lots of different bands of imagery. You started with the lowest resolution, 
and then went higher and higher and higher and then you would look for features that looked like volcanoes that formed under ice so you'd have really steep slopes and then a really flat top. So basically you're looking for those types of features. Emily was looking for volcanoes under these ice sheets to determine whether or not an ancient ocean once resided on Mars's North Hemisphere. And it's findings like this that would completely change the game when it comes to space discovery. To, to actually uh, prove the existence unequivocally uh, would be in a massive jump forward for astrobiology. And there's lots of evidence for and against, mostly it's for it would be amazing. The, the chance of an ocean, a long-standing body of water, you have organics, you have basically the recipe for life. And if we can prove that that ocean was there, we have a high possibility for life on Mars. The goal that tends to follow finding life beyond Earth is habitation. And at the moment, Mars and the Moon are the two best candidates. Both celestial bodies present challenges. Mars would be a lot easier in some ways because we know there is water that can be easily accessed in the soil, in the atmosphere, although that's quite very, very low, because any water on the surface of Mars currently immediately sublimates. So it's either frozen or it's a gas because liquid water is not currently stable. Um, Whereas the moon... It does have an atmosphere, but it's extremely thin. Both planets would present the challenge of needing to have our own habitats, needing to um, maintain our own atmosphere in a pressured environment. You you need to have a a habitat that we can build on the planet. We can't just walk out and explore the planet. (laughs) So either one, we wouldn't be able to just walk out without a suit. You'd need a suit on Mars and you'd need a suit on the Moon. I think both present those challenges, but... If we were to colonise one of these planets first, I would, I mean, just personally, it would be easier to do so on the moon because if something goes wrong, it's a lot easier and quicker to get there or to get home. Whereas if we're on Mars and there's an issue, I think we would not make it back. Think Sustainability will be back after this. Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR. Today the intergalactic space race. Coming to the end of her honours, Emily encountered a problem, and it wasn't one she anticipated. In the midst of doing her honours, new technology came out, and this new technology meant that image data being fed to her from these satellites orbiting Mars was far better than the data she'd been looking at from just six months ago. That imagery is so crisp, so fine, and you can zoom in so well. This sounds good in theory, but it also flipped her honours research on its head. 
now looking at those features that I was looking at, they don't actually look like what I thought they looked like in the other imagery. So it's a bit, <laughs> it's a little bit hard to um, then publish that and go, yeah, well, you know, there's definitely that sure level when I can't be 100% certain anymore. Um, uh-huh. So I need to go back and relook at all of the imagery and uh, using the newer, higher resolution data. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a bit of a blessing and a curse. You've got this technology that continues to advance and will give you a crisper, cleaner image. But then by doing that, it's like, damn, because the other one maybe wasn't as crisp, I thought it was something else. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's the thing about science. You know, it's constantly evolving and it happens to scientists all the time because... You'll do research, and then a year or two later, new technology comes out, and bam, (laughs) change, completely changed. So I think that's one of the good and irritating things about science. But, I mean, if it didn't constantly change, we wouldn't learn. Not only do satellite technologies continue to change and evolve, but so do the tech that allow us to further explore the depths of space. But when it comes to finding life beyond planet Earth or inhabiting another planet, having the technology is just one part of it. What about when we get there? How would we manage an entirely new society separate from the rules and regulations of planet Earth? I asked international law expert Stephen Freeland this question. You know, let's call it international space law. That, firstly doesn't purport to regulate anyone else but human beings, right? We haven't put in place a system to regulate extraterrestrial life, if if there is any. The law that we have and the future law that we create will only relate to what humans can do. And, of course, we are expanding our frontiers. If you make an assumption that more and more humans are going to go to space and that perhaps not in my lifetime, perhaps not in my children's lifetime, but maybe in my children's children's lifetime or whatever, we might have permanent settlements in space or on celestial bodies, say on the moon or on Mars. If we're going to do that, we need to think about what legal frameworks will apply to those people. The idea of establishing a legal framework for human habitation in space has already been practised with the International Space Station, but that framework isn't perfect. That, for a whole range of technical and nationalistic reasons, was done on an ad hoc basis. And essentially what happens in the space station, given that it's made up of modules created by different countries. You've got the United States, you've got Russia, you've got ESA, and that's representing 11 countries. You've got Canada. So you've got lots of different countries involved in that project. And for various reasons, they all essentially insisted that their own national law applied in the area that they themselves created, given that they're all now stuck together, these modules. You have this slightly awkward unsustainable view if this were to be absolutely a permanent settlement that different laws apply in different areas of the space station okay we can live with that because it's a one-off but if you move on and say we're going to have a permanent settlement on the moon or we're going to have a permanent settlement in space or whatever at some stage in the i think distant future those people that live in those areas 
they're going to want to get married, they're going to have kids, murder each other maybe. I mean, we just don't know, but they're going to do things that happen in societies on Earth. And at some point, we need to start thinking about, well, let's create a legal framework to apply to those people that is peculiar to, but therefore also relevant to, the unique environment that they're in. And law that's created on Earth terrestrially isn't necessarily adaptable to human inhabitation uh, in space. What might a legal framework like that look like? That's a really good question. If I knew that, I'd probably be nominated for uh, the Nobel Peace Prize or something. (laughs) Um, But clearly, there are unique features in a space environment. And, of course, we don't know what environment we're talking about. Um, And if we're talking about living in a a structure that is like the space station but but perhaps more permanent, um, that's one thing. If we're talking about living on the moon, which is, you know, at some point going to be reasonably accessible, uh, and people might be able to come back, et cetera, et cetera. That's another thing. So the environment itself will determine the rules that are necessary, but the rules there will have to cover as law does here on Earth. So you and I living here in, in Australia, it'll have to cover the important features of how we function as a society. And obviously in those unique environments, the functioning of the society, the things that they'll be able to do, the things that are important to them, things that are necessary for their survival, may be not the same entirely as what's important for us here on Earth. As we slowly edge further into space and begin to unlock more of its mysteries, the feasibility of habitation or finding sentient life becomes more and more possible. Internationally, efforts to reach these goals are moving forward, but it seems that Australia is lagging behind. We have no national space agency that would look after all of our space activities, and according to space archaeologist Alice Gorman, this is a massive missed opportunity. Australia was once at the forefront of global space exploration. This is back in the immediate decades following the Second World War. So we entered into a joint program with the UK to develop missiles and rockets. And we also have a long history of collaboration with NASA. We were the fourth country in the world to launch its own satellite. But every time it's come close to having some kind of cohesive government approach or proactive support for doing more in space, it's kind of fizzled out. There was an Australian space office for a little while and that kind of died. There was an Australian space board that fizzled out as well. The European Space Agency has invited Australia to join on at least four occasions. We always say no. And I've been thinking about this a lot and I think we still have a massive scientific cringe and I think it's almost as if Australians don't feel like we deserve space, like we're quite happy to just ride on the coattails of other nations and other space organisations. And I don't quite know what's at the bottom of that. I don't know why it is that we don't celebrate our own space successes. Do you kind of have a little inkling as to why maybe we aren't going on this voyage, so to speak? Well, a while back I wrote a a paper about Skylab. 
So Skylab was the first American space station. And it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere unoccupied. Nobody died uh, in 1979. And it broke up and rained down on parts of Western Australia. And Australians and Western Australians went a little bit Skylab crazy and were collecting the pieces. And there were a whole range of really interesting stories of how people engaged with Skylab. So at one point I asked myself, how is it that Skylab has become an icon of Australian space? And keeping in mind it wasn't our spacecraft, it just happened to fall on us. So why do people remember Skylab and celebrate Skylab and they don't celebrate Australia's satellite Reset 1, the satellite that made us the fourth nation in space? It's something that keeps holding us back. It's, it's something social or psychological or political about the Australian character, if I can even say that, mm -hmm. that means that we turn away from space instead of turning towards it. And so something about us prefers just to be, you know, just the regular people. Maybe it's the tall poppy syndrome at the end of the day, you know, it's another Australian cliche. Maybe we don't want to be seen to be getting too high above ourselves and you can't get much higher than going into space. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. You can also find us on iTunes. Also, you can head to our website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.